Welcome back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. My name is Sarah Perlman, the producer for this episode. And it's crazy to say I'm actually no longer a student producer, but now a Penn Med graduate and incoming intern in emergency medicine at Cooper University Hospital. Today's topic is pediatric transport, and it's been especially fun for me to work on this episode because volunteering as an EMT was a major experience that made me decide to attend medical school. To lead our discussion on pediatric transport, of course we have our host, Dr. Bob Belfer, an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine. We also have two national experts joining us, both of whom are the medical directors of pediatric transport at their institution. Dr. Nicholas Sarujas, who is an attending physician in the Pediatric Emergency Department at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and serves as medical director of the emergency transport team here. He has held leadership roles in committees dedicated to emergency response, capacity management, clinical communications, and the building of CHOP's first ever community hospital. He's also a professor of clinical pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Our second guest, Dr. Karina Noje, is the Medical Director of Pediatric Transport and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins. She is particularly interested in quality improvement and safety in pediatric transport and has spearheaded projects for children with life-threatening airway emergencies and cardiac arrest. Thank you, Sarah, for that introduction and welcome Nick and Karina to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We are in for a treat tonight. Our listening audience, Nick and Karina, by the way, has grown to over 1,200 downloads per episode. So you're talking not only to a local audience, but a national and international audience. And I want to thank Sarah for that introduction. Uh, and I want to get have our listening audience learn just a little bit more about the two of you. So Karina, tell us. What are some of your most memorable transports that you've been involved in over the years? Well, that is a very tough question to answer, but it's a lot of fun. So I think um, I'm going to probably remember three of them, and then you guys will be able to see why, hopefully. They, they have something in common. One of them is a transport of a teenager, and it came across the referral line as a treehouse accident. Intriguing, right? Not many treehouse accidents. Uh, this child uh, turns out that he was building a treehouse and fell from the tree, somehow landed on a wooden plank and got a big nail impaled in his skull. So they were, he was amazingly, um, awake and alert and talking, and they were seeking help because he obviously couldn't remain stuck onto such plank. So we sent a transport team. It never even occurred to us to ask an obvious question, which was, how long is the plank? The transport team got there, and we realized that the plank was too long to fit in the ambulance. <laughs> okay, so then, you know... People sort of looked at it, stared at it. What do we do now? You know, some folks were like, we're going to cut it. Well, you can't cut it because there's going to be, how are you going to cut it without making, causing worse and worse head injury from the vibrations? 
Well, then we tried to sort of fit it sideways. That didn't work. Look for a helicopter. That didn't work. Ultimately, the Maryland State Police had a helicopter big enough that we could fit the patient, the nail, the plank, all of it came to Hopkins. I can't imagine, I can't remember how we actually finagled him to get into the elevators and along across the hallways, <laughs> but somehow we did, ended up in the OR and then everything was fine. Um, so the patient did well in the end, but that was sort of an aha moment of, hmm, there would be some additional questions that one may want to ask. Another one that has uh, some similarities is a more recent transport of a little guy who had a seizure, run-of-the-mill transport. He was intubated for um, respiratory failure. We fly um, to get the patient. We get there an hour plus later. And essentially, uh, we find out that the patient somehow is esophageally intubated. But he has been esophageally intubated for an hour plus, and he has been induced and paralyzed for the induction. So we were all a bit shocked when the team called and said, we think this is not in the right place because he was well saturated. He had been sedated and paralyzed, completely paralyzed for it. So you would have imagined that he would have decompensated. And then eventually we said, okay, well, if you think that that's the case, you have to change the tube and put it in the right place. So then it became obvious why he didn't have a bad outcome in the first place, because the IO that was used for the induction and paralysis was a malfunctioning IO. So the only reason the patient was still alive is because he was intubated in the wrong spot using medications administered um, through a non-functioning IO. So that was the second one. Wow. And the third one, which is slightly more exciting, is a older child who we get a call from a faraway referring hospital uh, saying that the child has been in cardiac arrest for a number of hours. And we were sort of seeking, you know, what happens after that, why don't we have, so do we have ROSC or how did we pronounce? And if not, why not? And we were told that he was cold, but that's not why they didn't pronounce him. It's because when they would try to pronounce him, he would move, except that he was fully asystolic. So they claimed full, you know, fixed and dilated and cold, fully asystolic. So we transported, we said, this can't be. We transported, um, true enough, four and a half hours of CPR later. Uh, our folks want to call it. They stop the resuscitation. The patient moves his arm and opens his eyes. Asystolic. They proceed to cannulate onto ECMO, and he's alive and well to this day. Wow. So what do they have in common, in my opinion? is <laughs> just They just reinforce the fact that with pediatric transport, you can just never assume. Uh, sometimes they are just as built, as odd and bizarre as they may be to have a fully asystolic, flatline patient, five and a half hours of CPR moving. And um, other times they are really not. And the fun, that's probably what makes it so much, so much fun. Wow. Those are fascinating cases, Karina. <laughs> yeah. N- Nick, maybe I should have had you go first. This is going to be a tough act to follow. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I just couldn't Nick, decide. Uh, Nick, you no, get one um, You get one chance, one single case, mem- your most memorable transport. 
I have to say that my most memorable transport was when I was a trainee uh, doing transports and just starting in transport as a second year resident, frankly. It, it may have been like my first or my second shift. And I went out and with uh, uh, fortunately a very experienced transport nurse. And we went out to an outside hospital in the Philadelphia suburbs. And we came upon a child who was in respiratory failure on the inpatient wards. And, you know, I was smart and scared enough to say, yeah, he looks really sick. Um, we probably should have somebody come intubate him. And uh, they said, okay, you're, you're, you're it. And I said, well, can't you call like the intubator of the hospital? They said, yeah, well, we would have to call like the anesthesiologist in from home or there's really nobody else. I mean, this was, you know, a few years ago. And um, I had never intubated anyone but a neonate in the delivery room. And uh, fortunately, I had a, an amazing transport nurse who still works with us. And I still compliment her as really saving that child's life, even though I signed the procedure note. And I, I think I did the intubation. It was my amazing transport nurse who literally talked me through every step and kept on saying, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. What do you see? I think I see things like, like okay. Here's the tube. Just make sure it goes between the vocal cords. Do you see it, Nick? She literally talked me through. I think she held my hand, frankly, through the whole procedure. And again, um, even though I am credited for the procedure, I to this day still give our transport nurse full credit for saving that child's life because it was her um, instilling confidence in me, even though she probably didn't even have the confidence, but she at least made me feel like I could do it and talked me through it. And she was so composed and so just overall wonderful and qualified to be not only, um, you know, the nurse, but my partner. And to this day, realize the important work that the transport nurses and the transport staff do. And uh, anyway, uh, it, to this day, I, I credit our staff as being just amazing clinicians on each and every transport. And I know that she saved my life that day. And who knows that someday I would grow up to work with her alongside in a different capacity now. That, that is a warming story, Nick. And as you know, in addition to physicians and student physicians listening, we have a large number of nurses who are regular listeners to the podcast, and we will be talking about team composition shortly. Before, though, our regular listeners to the podcast know I like to give a little historical vignette about the topic we're going to discuss. And emergency care transport actually dates back as far as the Civil War. Soon after the Civil War ended in 1865, Cincinnati became the first city to have a civilian ambulance. Four years later, New York City followed. Now, New York service differed a little bit slightly. They arrived with medical equipment and splints, but they also arrived with a quart of emergency brandy for each patient. <laughs> Nick, have you continued this tradition here in Philadelphia? No, um, I, I don't drink and uh, I don't let my teams drink either. All right. Uh, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I'm with let's, Nick. <laughs> uh, great. Thank you, Karina. Well, my experience with transport, when I was a junior attending in need of money to pay off student loans, we were able to moonlight at the St. Christopher's Hospital for Children transport team. We would do 24-hour shifts, and if a patient was sick enough, our standard team, which was composed of a nurse and a respiratory therapist, would call me and have a physician be added to the team to go out to get a severely ill patient. And that leads me, Nick and Karina, to team composition. Nick, is there a certain standard of care of who should be on a pediatric transport team? Mm -hmm. 
No, there's not only is there no standard of care, it is practiced in so many different settings differently. I think um, it was the the Carlson article that I think it was published in Pediatrics um, about a decade ago now that surveyed 335 neonatal transport programs and found 26 different team configurations, the most common being um, RNRT. Um, I can tell you our program at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, we have a model. I just interviewed a nurse today, as a matter of fact, from um, I think Charlotte, and she asked me what our team composition was. And I said, well, we're nurse plus blank. Our program, our composition is a nurse plus either another nurse, a respiratory therapist, a paramedic, a resident physician, a fellow physician, a, did I say paramedic? If I didn't, a paramedic, or um, even PAs and NPs. So our team composition is generally two people, although we add a third person when necessary. For instance, if we had a very sick neonate, we would add a fellow. But it's usually nurse plus blank, again, usually being a medic, a respiratory therapist, or another nurse, and maybe a doctor. But um, every program does it a little bit differently. I'm curious, um, Karina, to hear about how your program does it. I know we're a little bit unusual that we don't have a fixed second team member, but what do you guys do? We are just like a CHOP program in the same sort of sense of um, having a, a variable team composition. We have a tiered approach to how we triage patient transports. We can send a paramedic plus EMT. We can add a nurse, which is a pediatric critical care nurse. We can add to that a respiratory therapist for a subset of um, calls. We can add a pediatric critical care fellow. And for ECMO transports, we actually, those we actually staff with a um, pediatric intensivist and perfusionist from, from the PICU. So it's somewhat similar in the sense that we don't have one fixed team composition. Um, and some places do. Uh, some places have unit-based teams. Some places have dedicated teams. Ours is a dedicated team, just like CHOPS. But the um, hospitals and transport systems that have a lower transport volume and cannot have a dedicated team, they work with a unit-based team. So that is possible as well. Right. Now, that's informative. Let me ask both of you. We'll start with Nick. Are there any, since there's such a diversity of team composition, depending on the, the transport, the location, the facility, are there any outcome studies in the literature uh, based on team composition that you're aware of? There are certainly some studies that um, I'm aware of that have attempted to publish some outcomes. You know, we could go on forever about, you know, how you can look at some of those studies and kind of find I won't say methodological flaws, nuances that make it really, truly difficult. Um, I'm curious what Karina thinks about these, because we, we've looked at that and we've thought about doing those things, too. The, the outcome studies are, are brutal in the transport world, especially when you start talking about changing. Well, there's 20 different variables with every transport study. It's not even just changing the variable of the team. Every transport study, and they, like I said, there have been some that have looked at these outcomes. There's variables of air versus ground, distance, acuity, uh, referral bias, acceptance bias. So there are so many variables to control that in the end, the numbers are so small, it's been really hard. And I, I, I really applaud those people that have tried to do those studies. It's so hard to draw conclusions because there's so many variables, few of which you can ever control. Correct. I completely agree, Nick. 
The other thing, there are certainly some studies looking at outcomes when comparing a unit-based team with a dedicated team or a dedicated pediatric team with a general team. Those certainly are there and um, tend to uh, suggest that the dedicated pediatric teams are safer. They have better outcomes. They have fewer in-transport adverse events. Um, and the morbidity generally is just tends to be less. When it comes to further dissecting the problem, it becomes so much more complex because it's not just, you know, the size of your team, the size of the, you know, the catchment area, geographic variables, you know, patient volume. It's not even just that, but some States have specific requirements to use paramedics, for instance, in all transports. Maryland is one such a state. It wouldn't be possible necessarily to do just an RNRT, which happens to be in surveys, in some of the most recent surveys I've seen published, happens to be one of the most uh, frequently encountered team composition uh, for pediatric, not neonatal, for pediatric transports. And that was just 30%, so not like high, the numbers aren't really that high. The one thing I'll say that the literature is most clear about, and I think few people would disagree, is that pediatric transport teams have better outcomes than non-pediatric transport teams. I think that's been proven in several different studies, both in the, I'll say the trauma, the non-trauma, in you know, the medical world, the surgical world. There's a lot of, when you look at all those patients put together, that's the, the one thing I think that most would agree on. But Again, it's really hard to draw a lot of conclusions about the outcome studies. Great. Thank you both. Let's transition. I referred to a Steve Martin movie back in 1987, Trains, Planes, and Automobiles. Let's talk about mode of transport, another controversial topic. Nick, quick question. Whose decision is it to decide? Is it the sending hospital or the receiving hospital to decide the mode of transport? That seems like an easy one, right, Nick? Oh yeah. Well, if you ask my if you ask my medical command physicians, they're going to say it's our decision. It's the receiving, but it's not true at all. It is always the sending hospital's decision. We try and tell them that it's our decision and convince them to do it our way. But it's the it's the sending hospital. Now, of course, you like to think there's collaborative models where you know if you're calling me and I'm the pediatric specialist, you're going to look for my insight in whether air versus ground is a better choice, and it is my you know, my duty to give you my recommendation, but it's just that, a recommendation. It's your decision-making power to decide air versus ground as the sender. Great. Karina, let's ground versus air. And when we talk about air, we're talking about rotor wing versus fixed wing. Give us the 10,000-foot view, literal, literally and figuratively. Advantages and disadvantages. We know availability. We know weather. Maybe talk to us about cost, safety, medical condition. Give us sort of some of the pearls that you sort of have learned over the years in your position as directing the transport team at Hopkins. Yes, absolutely. So if you were to have your pick, let's say you would have all of those available, it would still depend on what you would choose, your geographic conditions, whether you're an urban or a rural um, center, the state that you, you know, your, the size of your catchment area. So those type of metrics would, would really influence your decision in some fashion. In a very simplistic way, the cheapest transport vehicle is a ground ambulance. Now that's not cheap, but it's the cheapest one. 
it has a number of advantages. It's rather large. It can right. uh, fit a significant number of staff equipment, you know, the neonatal trucks sometimes can even carry two patients, you know, two babies. So so you have a little bit more versatility. You can stop it and start it whenever you feel like it. Uh, if you need to do a procedure, you know, you can you can stop and, you know, pull on the side of the road as bad as this sounds um, and do that. You can divert to the nearest hospital if you are in dire straits. So those are some of the, you know, in a, in a simplistic way, some of the kind of advantages of using an ambulance, a ground ambulance. Some right. of the disadvantages, of course, the speed, you know, it will take multiple hours to reach places. If you practice in a busy urban um, setting and it takes you three hours to get to a hospital that's 20 miles away, um, then that may not be necessarily um, the best choice. Um, or if you're practicing in an area that has a you know, large territory, that may also not be very practical. So the catchment area kind of matters. And then kind of moving up would be the rotor wing, and that's your typical helicopter. Um, it's more costly. It is faster. It is um, smaller. It doesn't fit as many crew members. You need to be very uh, well aware of all the, ha the safety hazards. There are a number of hazards that are sort of specific to it when you're looking at noise and vibration, um, and those would affect the patient. There is the right. altitude that will certainly affect the patient. One of the major differences between the rotor and, and the fixed-wing aircraft is that the rotor is not a non-pressurized aircraft, whereas the fixed-wing is pressurized. So if you are, are transporting a patient that could be subject to altitude and hypobaric hypoxia, that would be a little bit problematic. Because it is not pressurized, you can't, you know, with fixed wings, you can, they are pressurized and you can actually pressurize it at sea level. So um, in theory, you know, that is a possibility. For rotors, um, you don't have that luxury. It's hard to do procedures. You can't just stop it and start it. You need to have some sort of a landing pad. Sometimes you would need to get there with an ambulance, so it requires more transitions. You can use, um, you can fly by instruments or visual. Not all aircrafts have both options, so weather is definitely a limitation. So that would be sort of simplistically um, the discussion about the rotor. The fixed wing has a lot of advantages, a little bit roomier, it's a little bit quieter, it is pressurized, it flies by instruments, um, it's not affected in the same way by weather. You can fly further than 150 miles, um, so longer distances. Some of the disadvantages would be that it, they do require a flight plan, can't just land it anywhere. So it's a little bit more limited in, in the way it's being used. Great. Thank you for that complete answer. Nick, I know you have experience at CHOP with both ground and air transports. Anything to uh, add to Karina's comments? No, my uh, friend and colleague Karina did a masterful job. I can't um, improve upon that at all. Great. Karina, speaking of transport, there's one transport we type we didn't talk about. And you and your colleague, Dr. Bruce Klein at Hopkins, published an article about patients being transported in their parents' car with or without an IV. 
comment on what your study showed and do you recommend that at all? And, and then Nick will turn to you if that's a viable option for some parents, specifically because as you both alluded to, the cost of some of these transports on the back end, the bill that the parent gets at times can be astronomical. So talk about if it's a viable alternative in some cases. Yes, thank you. I appreciate the question. I was um, laughing because this was a study done by one of our former um, pediatric emergency medicine fellows. And initially, it was her idea. She was moonlighting at a community hospital and was sort of seeing the back end. And as she was sometimes the referring physician for our team, she kept asking, how come this patient cannot be transported in his parents' car. So it ended up being a really nice study. She did it all, and we were there to support her. But essentially what she found is that there are certainly subset of patients who um, meet certain criteria and are stable and reliable. And those folks are certainly better off in their parents' cars than waiting for, you know, sometimes a long time for an ambulance, being, you know, risking being separated from one of the parents, and then, you know, incurring the cost, um, as you said, of, of an ambulance ride. And some of these, so we've certainly studied it, and one of the major issues was a perceived impediment for patients that needed, that needed an IV. So let's say the IV was being placed at the referring institution, and, you know, would you be able to safely discharge that patient as the referring physician with a working IV and counting on the family to kind of care for it and end up at the... Re- receiving institution in an in a pristine uh, status and and that was just it ended up not being a problem it was never really a safety issue so we've incorporated the results and we made the change and now we're transporting a number of patients by parents um, by their parents uh, cars so yeah and, and yeah Karina and I could speak for the shop experience uh, as director of the community pediatric ER more and more and it's really because of the cost in other words we hear after the fact that these patients get huge bills uh, so we're transferring some directly, you know, in the parent's car, usually with n- without an IV. So now hearing what you say here, we may, we may be able to sort of hep block that IV. Uh, so uh, again, food for thought. Let me switch gears and talk Mtala. And Nick, sometimes your middle name has come up as Mtala. <laughs> I, I, I've heard you give seminars on Mtala. There are so many issues that we could talk about, and I know you are an expert on those. Let me just ask you a few pointed questions. Number one, Nick, you're the receiving hospital, okay? Do you have to accept every outcoming hospital's call to transport a patient to your hospital? Well, if, if we're being called by an emergency department, because that's, remember, the most important thing to start with is Mtala does not imply to inpatients. And that has actually gone back and forth over the past couple of decades. But it, it started as an emergency department uh, federal mandate, and now it continues as an emergency department federal mandate, even though there have been some curveballs through the years legally about that. If an outside hospital has managed a patient, an outside emergency department, again, to make it more specific, has managed the patient to the best of their abilities and capabilities, and they call you to transfer a patient, and your um, hospital, the receiving hospital, has the staff, the capabilities, and the capacity, and I'm going to put capacity in air quotes, because that's what everybody kind of uses as their uh, trump card, so to speak. 
if you have the capacity, if you have the staff, if you have the capabilities and the other hospital doesn't, you are mandated to accept that patient. And that's the federal mandate of EMTALA. However, as we know, capacity is where people will say, well, we're full too. And I always say full is, a, uh, is defined differently by the nursing supervisor than by the resident taking the call, than by the attending in the ICU, than by the bed management czar. So the interesting part of EMTALA, and this is often kind of blurred because people use capacity um, kind of sometimes as a reason to not accept, the true letter of the law is if you as an institution have demonstrated that you have taken your hospital to a capacity that you're being asked to take to now, i.e. specifically, did you open the PACU for extra beds? Did you double up patient rooms? So if you have in the past demonstrated that you can go to a higher capacity, then you will be expected to go to that same capacity. Again, providing you have the staff and the procedural prowess of your technicians to do whatever they're asking you to do. So the short answer is, if you can, you should accept these patients. And if you don't accept, as I say, especially to our trainees, you really better have a good reason. And I always say that's an attending level decision to say no to another emergency department if you can't accept the patient. Great. And another somewhat common issue that comes up, Nick, Mtalawise, when does the care transition to the receiving hospital team? Is it when you, the receiving hospital medical command doctor, hear about the case? Is it when your transport team arrives at the sending facility? Or is it when you leave the sending facility? Is there a clear demarcation of whose care the patient is under? Yeah, good question with a complex answer with, again, in the end, I always say, I always like to give black and white answer because in the end, you have to have some clarity, even though the answer will start vague. As soon as you get a phone call as the receiving institution, tag your it, you are part of the care team, whether you like it or not. And as a matter of fact, Amtala obligates you to be a consultant. As soon as an outside hospital calls you and you have some expertise that they don't have, you are part of the care team. So that's where your relationship starts with the patient. Now you dispatch a team and your team gets out there. And here's where it starts to get even fuzzier. I know we always think our own transport team, as soon as we transition the baby, let's say for a neonate, we transition the baby into our isolate and we change over the lines and whatever tubes, we tend to think, well, I have now touched the baby. The baby is in my isolate. It's on my monitors. It's our baby. Well, it's still not your baby. It's really more their baby than your baby. So the answer is you progressively assume more and more responsibility of the care. But the ultimate changeover, if you're going to ask for a clear demarcation, where it becomes more your baby than their baby is when you actually leave the hospital grounds. Even, and the, the example that I give to our staff, even if you go up to an outside hospital, NICU, you put the baby in your isolate, you travel through the hospital, the baby arrests in the lobby. Now you've left the NICU, the baby's in your isolate, the baby arrests in the lobby right when you're walking out the door. It's still more the outside hospital responsibility than yours in the sense that it's still the ownership until you leave the premises. So the answer becomes clearer when you leave the premises. But the real answer is there's progressively more responsibility. And we like to think that we collaborate together and don't try and draw too much of a my baby, your baby kind of distinction. Yeah, I think that's an excellent answer, Nick, to a question that commonly comes up. All right. The last 15 months we've been dealing with COVID and the aspect of telemedicine has really grown. 
Talk to us, Karina. Telemedicine, has it been incorporated with transport? Can it improve patient care prior to transport? The other issue, Karina, I'll ask you to comment on, we know that up to 25%, if not more, of transfers to receiving hospitals get discharged from the ER. Can we use telemedicine, which now we all know what it is, how to use it, we have more and more of the technology. Can we use telemedicine to potentially decrease the rate of potentially avoidable transfers? Karina? Wonderful and very timely questions. Um, so not quite as complicated as Mtala, but still, I would say, um, a very um, unclear and un unsatisfactory answer uh, in transport. So we have the, the transport world, the pediatric transport world, has attempted to use and incorporate telemedicine um, for a few years now, for many years. And it's certainly the tele, kind of telehealth um, use has increased in pediatric transport even before COVID. And it was, there are a number of publications. Our institution implemented it, I want to say maybe five or six years ago. And initially we implemented asynchronous telehealth. So we pretty much transmitted images, specifically scans, head scans, um, and, and those we did publish on that date. There was a, an increase in or an improvement in patient outcomes, at least in, in, you know, some small numbers, but still improvement in outcomes for patients requiring um, emergent neurosurgery for life-threatening head bleeds. And one can kind of realize why, uh, because if the receiving neurosurgeon could possibly see the scans and decide to operate before the patient is even there, then they could mobilize the team, we could bring an OR, we can bring anesthesiologists, you can have the team ready, the table ready, and you wouldn't waste a lot of time, especially night times, weekends, when kind of the facilities are um, have less staffing. So we've initially started with that and then kind of expanded to use a little bit more synchronous um, telemedicine for medical direction um, process. A lot of other places um, are doing it, and everyone is using a little bit of a slightly different flavor. Now with COVID, things have certainly escalated. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of published literature on um, actual impact on patient care for transported patients. I think the concept of could it possibly reduce the cost and the burden on the healthcare burden by avoiding some potentially unnecessary transfers, that is certainly a very useful and up-and-coming topic. We are interested in looking at this and currently looking at this in the populations of children with seizures that get transferred over and then stay a few hours in our PZD and then they go home with an appointment with a first seizure clinic. Uh, a lot of other places are um, interested in that as well, but I haven't seen a lot of published data. There is certainly a lot of published data on some positive aspects of telemedicine use in rural, under-resourced settings in, in kind of consultation with either a specialist or a pediatric critical care physician. So those have been published, and certainly there seems to be a positive impact. I don't know of anything else more recent that's been published in terms of improved outcomes 
with use of uh, telemedicine and uh, for medical direction. There are a lot of perceived burdens. A lot of the times, everyone sort of kind of thinks that COVID time was a, you know, finite period where some of the laws and regulations and legal uh, issues have relaxed a bit. And, you know, we don't know where this is going to go in the, in the near future. Uh, we certainly hope that um, it's going to be opening and not kind of closing. I'm not sure what, Nick, if you have any other um, thoughts or, you know, what your experience has been at, uh, at CHOP. Yeah, um, we're, we're certainly not um, where we want to be with telemedicine. We have used it over the past few years, um, mostly with our neonatal population uh, to some smaller extent in the PICU. We still are challenged by the technical aspects of it. Um, I wish it was easier for our nurses and for our, our transport staff, um, both with we want to record everything that we're doing to simultaneously record audio and visual with a single device is quite challenging. So we're, we've experimented with different platforms. We're about to do something different and, and frankly, a new adventure with the NICU we're going to start. So I hope that we can um, add to the body of literature out there um, in the coming years. Great. And I think both of you, with COVID, there are more and more financial resources geared toward telemedicine. So if we can siphon some of those away for the transport of pediatric patients, I think that'll be beneficial for all of us. We have, as I mentioned before, many trainees listening to our podcast. Talk to us, Nick. Let's start with you first. Pediatric emergency medicine fellows, critical care medicine fellows, what is their role to train them? Is it a voluntary elective rotation? Is it mandatory that they spend time with the transport team? I feel, and I'm looking at both of you, there's just so much valuable information, so many interesting high-acuity patients that are in the transport world. Nick, what are we doing at CHOP? And nationally, what are we doing as far as trainee involvement with transport? Yeah, I, I can, I'll tell you first, um, nationally, there are all kinds of different, um, just like we said, team composition, there are different models. And there are some programs that um, are using trainees. And I will cautiously say more programs that are not routinely using trainees. At CHOP, what we do is there, it's a, currently a, it's an elective for our pediatric residents. It's a mandatory part of the training of our pediatric emergency medicine fellows. It just recently became a mandatory part, interestingly, of our pediatric hospital medicine fellows. It is, interestingly, a mandatory part of, I, I know Sarah Perlman, our producer, is, is going on to her emergency medicine residency. Um, it's a mandatory part of the residency of um, our emergency medicine residents next door at the University of Pennsylvania, and they find it to be a tremendous benefit. So our pediatric emergency medicine fellows, part of their rotation, but even though it's not a formal part of the neonatal fellows education, in a sense, they don't rotate with us, it is an expectation of their fellowship to participate in transport. So it is an expectation. The, the, you know, I separate out the rotation from the expectation. The neonatal fellows are uh, routinely partners with us on our transports. Um, the critical care fellows to go into that realm. Again, it's an expectation for them to participate in transport. We don't have um, as many critical care medicine fellows going on transports with us, although when needed, they're very vital and important colleagues for us. So even if it's not a rotation of the various trainee programs that's formal, it is still, an, I think, a recognized part of the rotation for at least our emergency and intensive care unit uh, trainee educations. 
Great. Karina, similar experience uh, in Maryland at Johns Hopkins? Somewhat similar, yes. We have um, our pediatric transport program is based historically, has been based out of the pediatric ICU. So traditionally speaking, the model always involved uh, the pediatric critical care fellows pretty heavily. And we employ them routinely for medical direction. And they also staff about 5 to 6% of our critical care transports. There is a tiered approach and there we have some triage um, tools that we use to delineate when their presence would be most likely to be needed. And outside of their obviously heavy involvement, we do have the PEM fellows, pediatric residents, um, emergency medicine residents that participate in that participate in rotations, both mandatory and elective, mostly electives. The neonatology fellows, uh, similarly to the CHOP experience, they don't fully participate in the pediatric transport. They have a neonatal transport team. They don't really dispatch with that team, but they are very heavily involved in the medical direction process, taking intakes. So they do get some of that experience. You know, we've, we see that heterogeneity at the national level as well. Um, and it's reported in, in surveys as well, where you Really, over the past 30 years or so, there has been a steady and but significant decline in the use and presence of residents in transport, specifically pediatric residents, and an associated kind of incremental, somewhat growth of use of, of fellows. And so one of the most recent surveys commented on up to 60% of the surveyed programs welcoming fellows in some capacity in transport. And the most employed fellows were the pediatric critical care and then PAM, uh, neonatology, and then, you know, the residents. But the pediatric residents were down to about 5%, so a very low number compared to years back. I was just going to say, as Karina said, the important thing for the trainees is to recognize that, you know, there's participating in the actual transports, and then there's participating in the medical command. I think that all would agree that, especially at the ICU level, the medical command piece is, is crucial, um, as well as in the, at the pediatric emergency medicine level, too. Our fellows, frankly, participate in medical command throughout their three years of training. But what's changing, as Karina said, is the number, uh, especially of residents, actually going out and participating in transports, which, of course, us transport geeks, we all find very sad because we know how much we learned, as I said about, you know, with my first story, that I learned how to intubate a 10-year-old on transport with my nurse. But, um, you know, the, the base of education is obviously changing. Sure. Thank you, Nick. Uh, I want to finish, uh, Karina and Nick, actually with something we started talking about. And that was, Karina, your case, when I asked you most memorable, one of your cases, of a child transported in cardiac arrest. And I allude to that because I believe you published a survey. I thought you needed to take a live patient from the sending hospital to the receiving hospital. But you published a survey, and tell us what it showed. How many transport teams would transport a child in cardiac arrest? Surprisingly, we thought we were, you know, the only crazy group, but but we're not. We're really not. And our CHOP friends, I think, are in, in the same boat. We, we would transport a select kind of group of patients in cardiac arrest uh, for a number of reasons. 
most often because we think that they may have a shot of being put on ECMO and, and, and saved, but not, not only. So we wanted to know more about what other programs were doing. And it turns out that about a third of the programs that we surveyed actually offered uh, that service to their outlying hospitals and their, the population that they serve. And in our meetings, when we meet at the national level, we kind of comment on this and talk about this. And, and it really is a service that you're doing to your entire population, not just your children, but their families, the referring hospitals, referring providers. So yes, it, it, it really is interesting. A, a lot of a lot more um, programs out there are actually offering this service. Great, Nick. The experience at CHOP, your medical command. You ask for vital signs. They say none. Do you still accept? Yeah, um, you know it's our obligation to accept any patient um, that uh, for whom we're asked to help them. We like vital signs, but uh, you know we're we're there to help. We're there to. Um, help the children, help the families, and even help the providers um, who are calling for help. So we, uh, we have preferences, but we'll, we'll take if we can help. Great. Thank you, Nick. Uh, audience, if you were not wowed by the expertise of Nick and Karina, I do want to give a plug. Both of you actually will be co-chairs of the American Academy of Pediatrics Section of Transport Medicine's Fall Scientific Program. I like to look at the future. So Karina, some final words. What are some of the topics? I know you and Nick are actually going to be meeting right after this podcast taping is done. What are some of the things that our audience and participants who will be attending the section's meeting can look forward to this fall? So we have the typical abstract presentation. We will have a number of oral presentations that are always very exciting. There is a lot of interesting transport-related science that's um, happening out there, and it's all going to be presented at the section on transport medicine. This Karina, year, give, us some te- give us some teasers, Karina. We want, we want specifics. Come on. Well, I'm not sure I'm allowed to give you a lot of teasers other than, you know, maybe you liked, um, uh, you liked Nick and, um, and, and myself on, on tonight's um, show. So hopefully that will be enough of an incentive for you guys to show up at the transport, on, um, transport medicine section. We do have this year the um, course on neonatal and pediatric transport, which is held every other year. Um, it's a two-day course. It will our the scientific session is embedded in that course. So there will be a lot of exciting topics um, as as part of the course as well. It's going to be a a bonus this year and and really, really exciting. Topics for medical directors, topics for trainees, topics for um, team um, uh, members, for nurses, for paramedics, for um, respiratory therapists. Um, There's going to be a little bit of something for everybody. Um, So Nick, anything anything else? Yeah, the abstracts uh, just opened today, June 1st, as a matter of fact. So anyone listening, please get your abstracts out. You know, what we expect to see, frankly, Bobber, so many of the topics that you brought up today. I mean, this is really amazing because, you know, the, the topics that we typically get and certainly will expect to get this time, it's going to be about team composition. It's going to be about medical command, medical direction. It's going to be about air versus ground. This year in particular, we certainly expect to see some abstracts about COVID. I mean, let's face it, every single transport team out there had to make some wildly innovative changes in their practice to routinely go out to get 
known or suspected COVID positive patients and or patients within families that may be known or suspected positive. So talking about transporting the patients, keeping the patients safe, but also a lot about keeping our own staff safe. So we certainly expect to see those kind of abstracts coming through. So it should be fun. It's in Philadelphia. We're excited um, and um, hope to see some of you there. Great. Uh, thank you, Karina and Nick. On behalf of Sarah and the entire CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, it was wonderful to speak with you. Uh, we look forward again seeing you in person, hopefully in the fall at the Section of Transport Medicine meeting. And uh, thank you again, both of you. 